our great privilege to be able to gather twice on this Lord's Day to worship together. I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Revelation 16. We're going to finish up that chapter this evening. Revelation 16, we'll be looking at verses 12 through the end of the chapter. Revelation 16, verses 12 through 21, so I'm going to read that for us. But before I do, I remind you, brothers and sisters, as always, that what we're about to hear read is the word of the living God. And so let us tremble before it and receive it from him with great joy. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole earth to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, as we now open your word, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, so that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. We ask this in the name of the one who is immortal, invisible, God only wise, the one who was and is and is to come, even the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it's a fascinating 
psychological dynamic to observe throughout human history that when those who are at war, soldiers who are away at battle, when they know or know with a relative degree of certainty that victory will happen, that they will win the battle, that they will win the war, those soldiers don't fight with any less vigor. They don't give up. They don't slack in their soldier duties. Rather, they're reinvigorated, and they fight all the harder. We can think of exceptions to that, but we can look at even our own history here in America and see that that has been the case, that when victory is certain in warfare, soldiers fight more vigorously because they know their cause is likely going to win. And see, I believe that's the exact same dynamic that's at play here as we look at the latter half of Revelation chapter 16. The Lord Jesus knows that we are engaged as his people in a battle, a battle that we've been engaged in ever since the fall, a battle between the seed of the serpent, fallen unbelievers, and the seed of the woman, those who God has graciously saved. And right after the fall, the Lord said, this would be the case. There will be this battle. And at times, we get tired in the battle, don't we? And at times, we want to give up. At times, we want to compromise that perhaps the enemy would let up a little bit. And what the Lord Jesus wants us to see with absolute clarity, yet again, in the book of Revelation, is that victory is certain. Christ will come back and completely and utterly destroy his enemies so that not a single one will remain standing. And in light of that, we should continue to fight. We should continue to be faithful, continue to study God's word, gather for corporate worship, engage in family worship, sing, pray, do all the things that the Lord has left us to do. And so it's very important that we see this yet again with absolute clarity this evening. And in order to see it very clearly, I want us to look at this under two headings, which there's nothing special about these two headings. First of all, we're going to look at the sixth bowl as it gets poured out in verses 12 through 16. And what we're going to see when the sixth bowl is poured out is that the Lord is setting the stage for the war to end all wars. The Lord is the one who sets the stage. The nations may think they're gathering to eradicate God's people, but the Lord is actually pouring out judgment on his enemies by gathering them together. And then second of all, what we'll see is we'll look at the seventh bowl as it is poured out, and what we'll see there is the war to end all wars. The final judgment, Christ completely crushing his enemies underneath his feet. And again, my hope and prayer is that as we see this, we would be invigorated all the more to pursue communion with the Lord, waiting for Christ's return. So let's look first then at the sixth bowl as we find it in verses 12 through 16. And before we even, I even read verse 12 for you, I just want to remind you of something that, that Russ pointed out last week. It's that as we've looked at these uh, three cycles in particular, these three cycles of seven, first the seals, and then the trumpets, and then the bowls, you see them um, increasing in intensity as each cycle passes. And so when you see the, the seals, 
being opened, these judgments of God being poured out on the earth, in this time period between Christ's first and second coming, what do we see? We see a quarter of the earth affected, a quarter of creation affected. And then when we look at the seven trumpets being blown, what do we see there? We see a third of all creation is actually affected. So it's increasing. And now that we're here in the, uh, the seven bowls, as they're poured out, what do we see? All of creation is affected. And so there is this intensification. It's covering the same time period, and, and we're seeing a lot of overlap and a lot of the same things, but we're seeing this intensification. And so I think it's important that we be reminded of that as we look now at the sixth and seventh bowl being poured out. But look at verse 12 with me as we look at the sixth angel pouring out his bowl. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now again and again as we've gone through this revelation of John that he receives from the Lord Jesus Christ, we've seen that John leans heavy on Old Testament historical happenings and imagery, Old Testament language. And so understanding that, as we read about a large body of water that dries up so that an army of people can walk across it, what great event does our mind automatically go to? Well, the first place your mind should go, and we've already talked about how chapter 16 is rich with Exodus language and imagery, we're to think of the time during the Exodus. When after the Lord had delivered the people from their captivity to Egypt, the Egyptians changed their mind. Pharaoh changes his mind, and they're pursuing God's people. And the people are complaining at the edge of the Red Sea, waiting for Egypt to come and crush them. And do you remember what Moses says? Moses says, be quiet and watch as the Lord fights for you. And then what happens? The, the waters part. The Israelites go across as on dry land, and when the Egyptians try to follow suit, what happens? The floodwaters of God's judgment engulf them, utterly destroying them, swallowing them up to the very last man. And so John is saying the Lord is setting the stage here for this, this cosmic battle, this, this battle that's going to happen between God and and all of his enemies. But here's the thing. John's not just pointing back to the Exodus. He's also more explicitly here in verse 12. Pointing forward to another event that happened in Israel's history. Much later than the Exodus. And that's the time when the Lord delivered his people. From the captivity they were experiencing under the Babylonians. You remember they were in exile. And the Lord promises in, um, in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. That, that he is going to send a certain person, Cyrus, from the east, this Persian king, to conquer the Babylonians and then deliver the Israelites and actually send them back to the promised land. But do you remember how that comes about? Do you remember how Cyrus defeats the Babylonians? He diverts the Euphrates River. He and his men build up a dam, essentially, stopping up the waters so that it dries up if you will, so that they could on foot, he and his army, walk across the Euphrates, take the Babylonians by surprise, and utterly defeat them. And so what John is doing by alluding and using language from these events, 
He's saying the Lord is setting the stage for the final battle that he will wage against his enemies. And just as they were destroyed back then, so they will be destroyed now completely and utterly. But how is this going to come about? How is it going to come about that the enemies of the Lord, the enemies of God's people, the church, are going to come together? Well, John actually tells us. So look at verse 13 with me. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. Let's actually read verse 14 as well. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole earth to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So John is reintroducing us to some characters who are no strangers to us. He's, he's reintroducing us to the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And, and we've, again, seen these characters earlier on, primarily in chapters 12 and 13 of the book of Revelation. Just as a refresher, the dragon, we're told in Revelation 12, 9, is Satan. And the beast, we're told... In Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, is the world's government under satanic influence as it is opposed to God, hates God, rebels against God, as we read about in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? And then the false prophet, you may be like, well, who is that? The false prophet's the second beast that we read about in Revelation chapter 13. The second beast represents false satanic religion. And so what we have here is this unholy trinity, an unholy trinity of, of the, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. They're trying to, to present themselves as a godlike figure. They're trying to prop themselves up in place of God. And the way that they're they're manipulating the nations, the kings, is that they, they are spewing out lies. They're spewing out falsehoods. They're spewing out propaganda to turn the hearts of kings and their followers to idolatry. And so that's why we have this, this disgusting imagery of frogs coming out of their mouths. Again, Exodus language, right? The, the second plague in Exodus chapter 8. And it's interesting Moses says the frogs are going to come first to you, Pharaoh, to the king. And so again, we have the association of these, of these, these two images. And John is saying what, what is going to happen is this unholy trinity is going to spew these lies out and all of God's enemies, all of the enemies of God's people, the church, are going to be brought together uh, so that they might do battle against the Lord. And notice what John calls it at the very end of verse 14. He calls it the great day of God the Almighty. This is the great day of the Lord that's mentioned again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, where the Lord will unleash completely and fully and finally his wrath on his enemies so that they're utterly consumed. And this pops up so many times in the Old Testament that I don't have time to take you to all the references. Just do a little word search there later on, and you'll see how this comes up again and again and again. But here we have the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet convincing the nations, you should, you should do this. You should, turning their hearts against God and against God's people, and the enemies of God think that they're actually going to be victorious. 
Now, we see that in verse 16. So let's skip verse 15. I'm going to come back to it. Don't worry. We'll jump there by way of application. But before we look at 15, look at 16 with me. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, just saying that word freaks some people out in this room, right? I think if you were to ask the average person out on the street, what is Armageddon? They would say, well, it's that final showdown between good and evil. All right, well, that's, that's pretty good so far. But for some reason, we as Christians want to take the Euphrates River and we want to take Armageddon and we want to take a lot of this stuff and say, these are geographical locations where these events are going to happen. And you are completely misreading this genre of scripture if that's where you go. John is not trying to tell you where this battle is going to take place. So then what is he doing? Well, what he's doing is he's try, he is pointing you to a geographical location because that geographical location was really important in the history of, of Israel, specifically regarding their, their battles. Because quite literally in, in Hebrew and in Greek for that matter, Armageddon means Mount of Megiddo. And so you go, okay, well, where is Megiddo? Well, Megiddo is a place where, again, many important battles took place in Israel's history where evil nations, evil kings, came against the people of God and sought to wipe them out. So a great example of this would be, probably the best example, would be Judges 4 and 5. When Barak and Deborah do battle against the Canaanites and Sisera, and they're victorious. That happened in, the, in Megiddo. Or you think of when Pharaoh Necho did, went and did battle against Josiah. Now Josiah was defeated there in 2 Kings 23, but again, that happened at Megiddo. Or think of another example is uh, Mount Carmel is pretty close to Megiddo, and what happened there? You remember the grand showdown in 1 Kings 18 between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and the Lord showed himself to be victorious against his enemies and all of the false gods. And so what John, again, is trying to conjure up in us is there is going to be this big battle between God's enemies and, and they're going to they're gonna try to attack the church and they think that they're going to be successful in that. And yet God is going to completely and utterly destroy them. And brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to reflect on. This sounds really intimidating, doesn't it? Everything that's happened so far in the first five bowls being dumped out of judgment, and if we think about all the other judgments, the, the seals being opened in the judgments that were released, and the trumpets that are blown, you sit back and you go, boy, it sounds like things are going to get really bad for the church. And now here you have all of the enemies of God coming together to do battle against the Lord and his anointed, his beloved, his church. And here's what you need to understand. Who's in control of all of these bowls being dumped out and trumpets being blown? And seals being opened. It's the one who's on the throne all the way back in Revelation chapter 4. These angels are not doing any of this except under his direct command. And what we, we need to see is that this is God's judgment upon his enemies. They think they're coming together because of the lies of, of the unholy trinity, Satan, and satanic government and satanic false religion. They think they're coming together to defeat God's people, but God has unleashed this, ordained for this to happen for their judgment. This is their downfall. Do you see the irony there? 
And so it's in light of this that Jesus cries out to us in verse 15. Here's the application. Behold, I am coming like a thief. You don't know when this is going to happen, right? If you knew a thief was going to come to your house, you'd call the police and say, hey, I need, I, need, I need someone to stay here, or maybe you'd prepare yourself to do something yourself. You'd protect your family, right? Whatever that looks like. And so Jesus is saying, I'm coming at a time when you don't know. And so there is this blessing for the ones who stay awake, who keep their garments on, that they may not go about naked and be seen exposed. What John is saying here is, now is not the time to jump into bed with Babylon. Now is not the time to jump into bed and be unfaithful and think, well, if I compromise a little bit, maybe I won't suffer persecution as much. John's saying, and Jesus is saying, don't you see? She will be completely and utterly crushed. We're going to see this with even greater clarity in chapter 17 and 18. But John says, don't compromise. God is sovereign over all of this. This is happening as judgment. And so if you try to compromise, you will be judged with Babylon, with the dragon, with the beast, with the false prophet. And brothers and sisters, here's the incredible comfort. This should strike fear in us. This, this is a threat. <laughs> this should cause us to shake in our boots and fly to Christ in faith and rejoice in the truth that, that he spoke to us in John's gospel, in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. Because what does Jesus say? He says of his sheep, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says, this blessing is for you because I'm going to keep you. I am going to give you all you need to keep this command. And so even as we do sin, and oh, don't we sin, brothers and sisters, the Lord grants to us repentance to turn away from those ways in which we compromise with the flesh and the world and the devil, and he grants forgiveness to us, and then we continue to walk with him, and we grow by God's grace. But we have to rest in the promise that he will keep us. I mean, how many times does your heart soar at, at this benediction that is often spoken over us by God through the gospel minister in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ he who calls you is faithful he will surely do it make no mistake this is a command here but that which he commands us he gives us and so we're to rejoice in that and for not even for one second think that we can somehow get away from the suffering and persecution that's coming for us by compromising with our enemies. Otherwise, we'll be destroyed right along with them. Instead, we want to be found clothed on that great day, don't we? So that we can join, by God's grace, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we've looked at the sixth bowl, which shows us how the Lord sets the stage for the war to end all wars. And now let's actually look at this war that takes place as the seventh bowl is poured out. Look at verse 17 with me. The seventh angel 
poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Now this is, this is a glorious verse here, and I hope to show this to you, but here's what happens. The angel pours out the bowl at the command of the Lord, and then what happens, we hear this voice bellowing forth from the temple, from the throne. And what is this voice saying? It is done. Now here's the question I want to ask. Who's saying that? Well, let's think about this. Who's, who sits on the throne in the temple? God the Father and God the Son. Well, who said something in his earthly ministry? I just gave that away. Something very similar to this. It is done. You don't have to know the Greek to make the connection. Doesn't Jesus in John's gospel, John wrote the book of Revelation. He received it. He wrote it down. He wrote the gospel of John as well. And what does Jesus say in John chapter 19 verse 30? As he's paying the penalty for our sins, atoning for your sins and my sins. The sins of all the elect who ever were, whoever would be, ever will be. He, he drank the fullness of the Father's wrath after having fulfilled all righteousness, all the, all the commands that you and I have broken, Jesus kept them perfectly so that that righteousness can be counted as ours. After he's about to give up his spirit, what does Christ say? It is finished. And so I think it's Christ the risen, glorified Christ, the Lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world, saying, it is done. And, and so what does that tell us, brothers and sisters? John is telling us we live in between this time of the two cries of Christ, don't we? We've had fellowship and communion restored with God through what Christ has done. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son in the Spirit. And we rejoice in that. Our sins are forgiven. We're declared righteous. We're adopted. Jesus then rose from the dead and ascended and sent the Spirit. And we've received that Spirit. And oh, how we rejoice in the blessings that are ours as new covenant believers. And yet, is there not a part of you that aches, that longs for the fullness of that, the, the full experience of that, without the hindrances of the flesh and the world, and the devil, and death, and evil, and sin. And you see, we have such a sufficient, complete Savior that loves us, that he is going to cry out. He didn't just cry out, it is finished then. But he will cry out on that great day, it is done. And what we see follow after this, especially after chapters 17 and 18, is our enjoyment of communion, perfect communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and with each other for all eternity. And so, brothers and sisters, this is what we're waiting for. The world has nothing to offer you or me in comparison to that. And so, by God's grace, let us remain faithful until we hear that final cry of Christ. It is done. Now, here's the thing. John, John wants to show us, though, the, the decisive nature of this battle. Because the reality is, before that can happen, before we can experience that shalom 
as it were, our enemies have to be eradicated. They have to be completely destroyed. Justice must be upheld. And so that's exactly what we see happen. So look at verse 18 with me. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Again, brothers and sisters, more Exodus language. More Exodus language. When does this happen? At the Exodus. You remember this happens on Mount Sinai. God manifests his glory to his people before he enters into this this covenant relationship with them. And here's the thing that that we need to understand. That's not just tied to the, the salvation, the grace that God shows to his people. It's also tied to the judgment that God just met out on Egypt. He, he just crushed them. And so you, you know why the people are trembling. They say, Moses, you go, man. We don't even, we don't even want to go near that. We don't have God talk to us anymore. They're, they're terrified because in part God is being shown here as judge. And so John picks up this language and says, and this isn't the first time, by the way, we've seen this language in Revelation. Go home and do this either tonight or sometime during the week. Go look at every time John uses this language of of flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. Because every time this happens, starting in verse 4, going all the way until now, and actually, is there one more case after this? I think there is. Anyway, yeah, there's one more instance after this. Every time he adds another element. He adds another element of the imagery of the judgment. And so again, it's intensifying. And here we have it reaching a fever pitch. And John says that because he says there's this earthquake like there has never been since man was created. And this is, this is in keeping with what God said would happen. God says in promises in Haggai 2 verse 6, in Zechariah 14 verse 4, and in the New Testament in Hebrews 12 verses 26 and 27, he will shake the kingdoms of this earth. He will rattle them and destroy them so that they come crashing down and we have the privilege of being a part of a kingdom that can never be shaken. Because the kingdom that Christ has instated, inaugurated, and will bring to its culmination is an eternal kingdom. And yet, what do we see happen to the kingdoms of this earth? Look at verse 19. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wrath, I'm sorry, the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. So we see that actually happening. God is is shaking the kingdoms of the earth. He's destroying them. And notice who he remembers in particular. Now, this isn't the kind of remembering that you want to happen, right? We, We learned about how God remembered Noah in Genesis a couple weeks ago. This is not the kind of remembering that's happening for Babylon. God remembered Noah graciously. God remembers Babylon here for justice. And what has Babylon done? And we've already argued this in the past, so I won't do that tonight, and we're going to argue for it more in the future. Babylon simply represents the the fallen satanic government as it is opposed to God. And what has she done? She's misled the nations. She's misled the nations so that the nations drank of the cup of the wrath of God. And so God says, guess what? Now it's your turn. And so you're going to drain that cup. You're going to drink the fullness of my wrath for your sin and for your rebellion. And so here we see God upholding 
justice. Brothers and sisters, every wrong will be righted. God's righteousness will be on full display on the day of the Lord, and who will be able to withstand it? But notice, sort of parenthetically in verse 20, that the Lord's judgment when he comes back doesn't just affect mankind, God's image bears, it also affects creation. Look at verse 20. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. This kind of language has already been used previously in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 14. But what we see is that God destroys his creation here in judgment. The, the islands, the mountains, they completely disappear. But again, the focus is not primarily there. The focus primarily is on the image bearers of God who have rebelled against him and how he literally rains justice on their heads. And we see that again finally in verse 21. Look there with me. And great hailstones about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Again, John is using um, Exodus language, right? right? We remember um, the seventh plague in Exodus 9 was this hail coming down. And we can think of... um, brimstone and fire falling from the heavens down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And we can think of Old Testament prophecies where God says, I'm going to have this hail come down on my enemies in judgment. And John's picking up that imagery, and it's terrifying, right? The imagery uses 100-pound hailstones and people just getting crushed by them. And yet, lest you think, man, is this really just of the Lord? Is this really what fallen mankind in rebellion against God, is this what he really deserves? Note that John says that even to their dying breath, they're cursing God. Their hatred is so great that even when it's very clear their demise is at hand, still, they're not going to use their final breath to, to seek repentance. It's too late for that anyway at this point. Instead, what do they do? They open their mouths and they die as they lived, cursing And so he crushes them under his feet. And so brothers and sisters, what are we being shown here? We're being shown the end of all struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We're seeing John symbolically representing for us the war to end all wars. And who sets the stage for it? Our sovereign Lord. This is his judgment. When, when things look their worst, like they couldn't get any more bleak, we're to understand God is sovereignly judging his enemies. And even through that, he will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so, brothers and sisters, here's some more application. If that's true, at the greatest of all struggles, that's also true in whatever struggle you're facing this evening. And here's the thing. The the world promises you comfort that you can feel and taste and touch. And I'm not going to lie to you. It does comfort you for a short period of time. But but it won't deliver. It can't deliver you from this. And if, if you give in to that, if you walk in the ways of Babylon, again, you'll you'll share in her punishments. And they're horrific. So the reality is, The world, the flesh, and the devil, they offer you no refuge. 
So do not turn. Instead, stay awake. Be ready. Continue to look to the Lord in faith and repent of your sins as you commit them. Fly to Christ again and again and again. Are we looking to him as our blessed hope? Understanding, I know it's tiring. I know the battle's tiring. I know there's days you want to give up. But this is why we don't. This is why we don't, because victory is certain. And and what awaits us? Whatever punishment and suffering the world can throw at us, it's nothing. It can't touch our communion and fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If they take our very own lives, all they do is usher us into their very presence. So we're going to sing it later tonight, but let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Praise be to God. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are thankful for your graciousness towards us. As we read about this, we know this is exactly what we deserve for our sins. And yet we're thankful that Jesus drank this cup of wrath that we deserve in our place on the cross. And he fulfilled all righteousness, rose from the dead. And now we know fellowship with you. We're able to take up the cup on Sunday mornings and fellowship with you and with each other. And it's a little foretaste of of the communion that we will experience for all eternity. And so we long for that day. Keep us faithful until you return. Even so, come quickly. Maranatha, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name and for your sake. Amen.